0: This is Lost or Found, the podcast where we think about how we can live healthier, happier, and more fulfilled lives. The contents of this podcast and website are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health care provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition and before undertaking any diet, dietary supplement, exercise, or other health program. And now, here's the host of the show, Dr. Michelle Choi.
1: So it's raining here in California, and I have to say there's something really satisfying with seeing the ground wet. Hopefully we can help to prevent some of the fires in the summer. But there are evacuation orders in the Santa Cruz mountains as mudslides are expected, and my thoughts and prayers are definitely with those who have had to evacuate. And on another note, there are a near record number of COVID deaths in California, but the new cases are going down, and hopefully this is some good news for us in our near future. For all of us. And we have a very interesting show today, as I'll be speaking with Dr. Christine Farnbach about taking care of our brains. One's path of awakening, such as being aware of the state of your mind, being aware of your kindness and inner peace, does oftentimes feel like an uphill battle. But if you think about it, it's a process of digging and building. Nothing worthwhile is built in a couple of hours or less than a day. We live in a society now where immediate gratification is big. Everything is so quick and accessible. But maybe the actual learning and developing is still the same, and it's still really important. The truth that anything really worthwhile may actually be hard in the process, that it takes work. To learn takes a whole lot of effort. To build your business takes a whole lot of work. Conviction and faith doesn't just happen. You have to continue to walk towards that direction and not lose your way, even if it feels like there are really big rocks along one's path. But maybe this uphill journey is totally worth it. Maybe it's worth wondering. If you don't feel whole, if you feel a little or a lot empty, if you feel more unhappy than not, if you feel like there are a lot of instances in your life where you are shaken, if you don't feel loved or if you don't even like yourself all the time. And I'm just saying this because I feel like I'm on an uphill journey at this phase in my life. But maybe, if we want to feel good most of the time, we need to be conscious and help our minds find its way to peace. People who know me know that I love talking about bodily waste products. But isn't it ironic? If one needs to piss, one goes to piss. If one needs to take a dump, eventually we will take the time to release it. And if it's not diarrhea, who doesn't feel better from a good bowel movement? When I used to work in the primary care setting, if I had a bowel movement that was greater than a foot long, I would dedicate that moment to someone. You can literally die if you don't urinate or if you hold in your poop. But why don't we show that same respect to how we feel? If our stress level increases at a certain moment or has been running high, why don't we think about releasing it instead of holding it in? And I use the word stress broadly, but when we feel it or feel it building in our bodies, maybe it should be more automatic where we also go into a mode where we relax to release it. Because it may not kill you now, but it can kill you later. Buddha's Brain, written by neuropsychologist Rick Hansen and neurologist Richard Mendes talk about how we can understand our brains and find our pathways to happiness, love, and wisdom. They talk about how what flows through your mind sculpts your brain, and that you can use your mind to change your brain for the better. It's literally understanding how we affect our own brains. The idea that what we think may have consequences not only in the short term, but also in the long term as it affects how the neurons in the brain fire and connect to each other. It's a fascinating read. They bring up the idea that in our lives today, the sympathetic nervous system or our fight-or-flight response is chronically activated, disturbing multiple systems in our body and increasing our health risks. In the GI system, we see increased risks of ulcers, colitis, IBS, diarrhea, and constipation. In our immune system, we are more susceptible to colds and flus, slower wound healing, and more serious infections. In the heart, we see more hardening of the arteries and increased heart attacks. In the endocrine system, there's increased risk of diabetes, PMS, erectile dysfunction, and lowered libido. And I have to say, primary care surprised me because there are more and more younger men complaining of libido and erectile dysfunction issues, but many are not comfortable discussing the why. Like men in their 20s, having more stress hormones such as glucocorticoids floating around depletes norepinephrine, which normally helps you to feel alert and energetic. And with decreased norepinephrine, You may have feelings where you don't care, you can't concentrate. Stress hormones also decrease dopamine, and this leads to not enjoying the things that you used to enjoy. Stress also reduces serotonin, which keeps us in a good mood. Antidepressants are aimed at increasing serotonin's effects, but when serotonin levels drop, it makes you feel sad and it further decreases norepinephrine levels, which are already decreased by stress hormones. Doesn't this all sound like depression? Pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional, meaning you have some control over how long you are going to suffer. Dan Mager in Psychology Today states that our thoughts have the capacity to make us miserable, and negative thinking can be especially insidious, feeding on itself, with the potential to become a self-fulfilling and self-defeating prophecy. According to Hansen and Mendius, happiness, love, and wisdom aren't furthered by shutting down the sympathetic nervous system, but rather by keeping the autonomic nervous system as a whole in an optimal state of balance. If the sympathetic nervous system is the equivalent of stress, the parasympathetic nervous system is a body state of relaxation and the parasympathetic nervous system can calm the sympathetic nervous system so it doesn't wreak havoc with constant activation. Maybe pain is inevitable. Without it, why would we even grow as people? Pain helps to alert us. If you didn't have that pain in your stomach or pain in your chest, how would you know that you needed to get help? However, we can control how long we suffer. Do you continue to live with the pain? Or do you get help, address it, and try to alleviate it? And the same goes for our emotions. Hansen and Mendius bring up the idea of the negativity bias of the brain, that it takes an active effort to internalize positive experiences and heal negative ones. What does this mean? It means that even if you have more positive experiences than negative ones, your brain prefers to retain the negative ones and grow the negative memories and experiences. So it means that we have to be conscious and take an active effort to take in the good experiences and literally absorb it. If our brains naturally retain the negative experiences, if we are not careful, we could invite more of the negative experiences and memories. And as Hansen and Mendia state, because of all the ways your brain changes its structure, your experience matters beyond its momentary subjective impact. It makes enduring changes in the physical tissues of your brain, which affect your well-being, functioning, and relationships. Based on science, this is a fundamental reason for being kind to yourself, cultivating wholesome experiences, and taking them in. When the parasympathetic nervous system is activated, it helps to calm and relax the mind and body. You can learn to activate your parasympathetic nervous system, reduce your sense of anxiety, stress, and dread. Be aware of how you feel and remember my bowel movement analogy. Are you going to do something about it? Taking deep breaths, meditation even if it's for a minute, walking, spending time in nature, Yoga, Tai Chi, or other exercises, doing something you enjoy, or consider bathing your wounds in counseling, all will activate the parasympathetic nervous system. I meant what I said earlier about my being on an uphill journey of awakening and development. Sometimes it really hurts. Sometimes I feel more doubt than confidence. But my friend Heidi, who speaks my language, told me something that really resonated with me. She told me that I have major bitch balls. Fine, the imagery may not be too pleasant, but reminding myself that I have major bitch balls not only makes me laugh a little, but it elicits the parasympathetic nervous system for me as I take several deep belly breaths and I remind myself to believe. And today I'll be speaking with Dr. Christine Fahrenbach, a clinical psychologist here in Santa Cruz about taking care of our brains. She is not only caring, but contemplative and thoughtful, and it's a real honor to have you on the show today. Welcome to Lost or Found, Dr. Farenbach. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. And, you know, before we begin, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, um, yeah, my current
2: work is I'm in um, private practice in Santa Cruz, just actually right downtown. And I've been in private practice for most of my career, but I've also done some teaching um, and consultation work and things like that um, from the Midwest and Spent many years in different types of graduate schools, including a study of theology and um, counseling, as well as my Ph.D. in psychology, which I got at the California School of Professional Psychology.
1: That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. And if I may ask you, before we begin, um, how did you get drawn to the field of mental health?
2: Well, I think a lot of people don't want to say this, but um, just want to help people. You know, it comes from a very simple place from, I think, a younger age. And I studied theology as an undergraduate because of, um, I loved it and the context it might give give me on the human person. And um, yeah, and then I wanted to be able to apply that. Um, And I also did a Master of Divinity at the Jesuit School of Theology, and that expanded that whole thing and also really opened up my mind to... I think the broadest um, view of a person that one can have. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of just want to help people. And then I, I really wanted something to put my hands on, something practical.
1: How beautiful. You know, I really believe uh, mental health is such a critical part of our overall wellness. How, from your experience, how do you feel people are doing during the pandemic?
2: Well, you couldn't say either good or bad. Um, you know, it's very, it's uh, multi-level, lever but everyone is, everybody who, it, well, even everybody who thinks it doesn't exist is being affected by this um, related to increased stress and trying to manage that. Uncertainty is a very big thing. There's a certain level of traumatization that occurs when you're living in the midst of a life-threatening pandemic, and you will see, I mean, there's statistics that will kind of can demonstrate the wear and tear this is having on people. And what I see in my own work is that there is a lot of wear and tear on people. And we move forward as well. But the impact is, I think, enormous. And it's something we'll have to deal with for many years to come.
1: I really think so. I mean, even the idea of like remote schools, the loneliness, the isolation and fear that people are feeling... PTSD that we're going to have to, you know, anticipate for the essential workers, um, even like the increased alcohol and drug use that we're seeing right now. I mean, I think it's really profound. Oh, very true. I think the
2: industry that's mostly doing very well is the um, alcohol industry.
0: Yeah.
1: They seem to be making a lot more money. (laughs) Well, they're saying right now, and this is kind of overlooked because of the mm-hmm. pandemic, mm-hmm. but they're saying the uh, number of drug overdoses right now is surging. Yes. And the numbers are continuing to rise to like record levels. Yes. I, I've read that. Yeah. It's crazy. Mm-hmm.
2: And none of that stuff really fixes anything, you know? No. But, well, when you're in the addiction, it feels like it does for a while.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Temporarily until you need more and more. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I read that since, um, you know, with COVID arriving, depression and anxiety, they were saying, has become much more rampant. I really believe it existed, you know, before, but it's more obvious now with the pandemic. You know, they're saying like federal surveys are showing that 40% of Americans are now grappling with at least one mental health or drug-related problem, but young adults have been, you know, reported to, like 75% of them have been reported to be struggling. The numbers are intense. Absolutely. Um,
2: I have read in the most recent study that I could find that two out of five, um, adults in America have, I have, will report being affected by the virus and that there's a 40% increase in reports of symptoms of anxiety and depression. So it, yeah, there's a lot of stress and, um, What I've also heard is that there's no expectation, although this information is from a while ago, that um, um, severe mental illness is increasing in a lasting way. There's a thought that, oh, after the crisis is over, this will remit in some ways. However, um, I think we'll be dealing with the trauma of this for a long time to come. I
1: really think so, because as a primary care physician or my work in medicine, I'm not even sure if we as a nation or even as a medical field are doing a a good job at approaching mental health or addressing it. And, you know, with the numbers right now and the effects, yeah, I think it's going to take a really long time to recover from. I I really believe that. And
2: um, we're not talking about the uh, relationship between mental health and medicine, but there's a, I think, a very big gap there. Yeah. Between the inclusion of mental health and our overall health.
1: I think there's something to be said. If like before the pandemic, you know, you know, while globally the suicide rates have been decreasing in the U.S. I read that since 1999, our suicide rates have been gradually increasing. Yeah, that's true. You know, like I think that's an indication that something is really off and that we're not addressing the problem appropriately. Well, right, in the midst of COVID, too, that the um, suicidality, that would mean not just
2: attempts, but suicidal thinking and so forth, has increased 40% over the course of the pandemic, which doesn't mean 40% more people are actually trying to take their lives, but that people will report that pretty significantly. And um, a lot of that is happening in the age group of 18 to 25-year-olds.
1: Yeah, and they're saying like, even, like in the young adult age group that one out of four report suicidal thoughts. Yes. That's yeah.
2: 25%. Yeah, yeah. It, it, that's very disturbing.
1: What do you think we're doing wrong? Uh,
2: well, I think we're in a bigger change over the last 20, 25 years in our relationship to resources, our sense of who we think we are, our place in the world, climate change. There's a lot going on. And I think younger people um, don't feel connected to the vision, say, that my generation might have had as who I am as an American, my identity, and how we saw ourselves in the world. And I think younger people, um, I'll see a lot of younger people in my practice, I'm just lost. Uh, Younger people like I'm thinking that particular age group don't have a connection with community. They have friends, they go to bars, they do this, that, and the other thing, but their connections to community, a sense of community, civic community seem to be like, I kind of poke around and try to find that. And it's harder to find. Um, and um, they can't express, or many of them, these are all generalizations. Of course, I haven't done a study on this, but people have a trouble, younger people have a trouble, uh, difficult time um, describing what is meaningful to them in life. And that makes me really sad. Um, and I don't want to speculate over long about why I might think that is, but I, I think that is true. And I, I even get like, I get such an ache in my heart for some of these young people who don't have a sense of their bearing um, in this world in a way that I know that I experience and my generation. And, you know, I think Xers as well. Um, it starts crumbling
1: the late Y generation and, and down the line. I think that's really important what you said in terms of connection. You know, in this day in society, there's so much modern technology and, the, you know, a lot of it we, we would assume has improved our lives. But maybe it's also affected our lives in ways that have taken away from other things, like perhaps actual connection. And I realize it could be, you know, overgeneralization, but I, I can't help but wonder. You know, I think that's it. You know, I'll talk to people
2: who, um, they have the most intimate conversations with people they love via text. Now I know there's a great improvement coming where you can actually express real emotion in text, but these lengthy, you know, conversations about, I can't believe you didn't talk to that person side by side to really communicate how you're connecting on that. I found that really interesting. And, um, I, I really worry about, um, screen time because it makes us less aware of our embodiment. And we get an instant, a a kind of instant gratification from, well, I'll just click to this other channel or I'll go to another website or I'll, you know, scroll down Facebook till I find something good about me or something intriguing or some good gossip or what have you. And people are in their heads, um, quite a lot with this screen and there's a a certain aspect of internal verbal and imaginative um, communication and the way our our inner selves communicate with ourselves that goes on in our brain as well and I think uh, we're losing our connection to the sensual world and losing our connection to imagination um, because of the instantness instantaneousness of everything and there's a seems to be something of a craving around this, you know, to be distracted, to reach into something like, you know, um, I'll be walking in the forest and I'm seeing person after person walking in the forest with headphones on. I'm like, why are you in the forest? Um, I mean, even at the gym, like if I go to the gym, I like, I don't listen to my headphones because I just like to focus on what I'm doing and the whole, um, impact on myself. So, uh, and that could be just a quirkiness of me, but, um, I don't need to be distracted by that, but a lot of people do.
1: I think you really bring up a lot of important points because with everything that we have in this society, there is an element of like immediate gratification. You know, I think people literally talk less on the phone and I'm not sure with the pandemic, but before the pandemic, I really believe people talked less on the phone because people will have conversations through the text or, you know, they relay emojis to express emotion you know, but how much is misunderstood in the text? You know, like, you can't relay that emotion as much as actually talking with someone, connecting with someone, looking at someone in the eye.
2: Well, I'm thinking of a funny memory when I was talking to a nephew of mine and just was joking about, you know, well, don't use your phone minutes up too much. And he says to me, well, who talks on the phone anymore? So it was all about, it is quite a bit about texting and I mean, email is even bypassed. Quite yeah, a lot. It's, it's I
1: agree. All about texting and it's that immediateness, you know, mm. or that you can reach someone really quickly. Mm. But I think the truth is, it does not replace human interaction. Well, that's more work. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, it's sort of, you know, I have this. It's another thought theme I work on or just think about. It. It's like we've become so consumerist, which doesn't mean stuff isn't good and giving gifts at Christmas and all this kind of thing. It's really nice to be thoughtfully connected to the things that we enjoyed but it's 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 almost like a Pac-Man eating things up you know that's that's how that game works and so it's like that text is consuming that you know that intrigue that it's it's all very
1: consumerist and it it's
2: very fleeting in its gratification
1: and i agreed with what you said in terms of you know Regarding a text, you know, more work actually goes into talking with someone. However, I think the payback for actually talking with someone is much greater than just a text. Like, you can actually get to know someone. You can feel that person. You know, I feel like with a pandemic right now, our interaction has been taken away mostly, you know? Like, you can't hug someone. You can't shake someone's hand. And I think that's something that I really miss dearly. Uh, you're exactly right about that.
2: I miss that too, and everybody I talk to misses that. Uh, but I, responding to your first point about engaging in a conversation, yeah, it is more work, and or more engagement, which may or may not be work for someone. Um, and listening is much different than reading a text. Um, much much different, and um, that is one of the things that many people that I know talk about, which is that kind of isolation you're talking about. I mean, there's we're already living in a little bit or actually some significant level of isolation because of technology. It can lead to that. Although there's communities too, online communities that seem to be very successful, but it's that um, contact and also feeling the energetic presence of another person. I mean, our whole body speaks when we're with someone, not just our face and our mouth. It's like the You know, it's it's a full on experience.
1: And you can't really like place a number to that energy, but it exists like love. Exactly. Yeah. I really feel like and this is just an example of our society, like a text can't build something really. However, like a human interaction can like the overall impact of a human interaction is you can't put a number to that. It's just something profound that's important to all of our lives, and perhaps it can save all of us.
2: Yes, I think that just the upside of texting, I think it it's a, a good connector, and I think it also, I mean, as far as it goes, though, as far as I can tell, and you know, I am in an older generation, um, it supports really fun banter, and it also supports a high level of nastiness between people, too. It, it can do that because you can be pretty anonymous
1: yeah communication I mean,
2: can, through hiding right or you can say something to someone on text that you might not say in person but then you're being impulsive and you're not controlling that impulse by in fact being with the person where you might more carefully choose your words
1: does that make sense no that's absolutely true I totally yeah. agree yeah do you feel like in your practice people are reporting greater levels of anxiety and depression right now I see that. And I have,
2: you know, I see some people who talk specifically about COVID stress, but often that uh, the stress and the anxiety is embedded in things that have already been of concern to them. So there's more of it. Um, there's more of the same things that have we've been working on. And I, I see the subtle effects, like people are not saying, mm-hmm. but I can read it in the conversation. And also what I perceive through a, a Zoom call that there's a lot of unspoken stress, um, and it'll come out in uh, let's see irritability that's not common to a person, or becoming more isolated without noticing it. It's it's almost like we're getting used to the water um, of the pandemic, and we don't know it's gotten cold, so we're just like kind of reducing our temperature to to do that to take care of ourselves in a way. So I think we're shutting down in ways that we might not overtly recognize.
1: And I really believe if a person is able to come to you and talk with you, that's actually an indication of a really strong person. Because in my experience, you know, from the hospital to the office setting, I was actually floored by the number of people who felt like they were depressed and anxious. And a lot of them could not put a terminology to how they felt. Mm -hmm. And even though it's so common, I really feel like with people not talking about it, it's still considered taboo when the, the truth is it's so common. Oh, that we have, that we have
2: anxiety and depression. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, um, well, it might be partly cultural. Um, women are more willing to speak about their distress than, than men are there's that whole strong man thing. And, um, but there's a lot of individualism in, in our country. I think the, the roots of our puritanical, um, beginnings you know the Puritans, I think that's still present in our um, say our cultural unconscious in a certain way. So that's prohibiting but to be weak also um, or to express that you're having trouble is antithetical to surviving at all costs, which by virtue of evolution we are programmed to do to survive at all costs.
1: And I respect the human resiliency, and I think it's apparent right now too, but why go through life in so much pain? I think there should be a limitation of how long you should be in pain. For me, I give it two weeks, you know. If, <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah, if it's like continuing like mm-hmm. that, why live like that? Because that two weeks can easily turn into several months, several years. You know, why go through like life like that? Well, um, because it's more
2: frightening to get help and to bring things to light than the thing that's disturbing you. So, for example, people will stay in bad relationships because it's unhealthy relationships because it's more frightening to leave the relationship than it is to stay in the relationship.
1: And I think it's interesting what you say. People give, you know, how they feel or what they're feeling mentally to socially appropriate terms. Like, I feel like stress is taken a little bit more, you know, it's more accepted than the actual words of anxiety and depression and whatnot, you know? Oh, yeah. You're almost a hero if you're too stressed. Yeah. That means you're doing something. But I can't help but feel, and I know there's evidence to support that stress or how you feel actually affects your physical health. Well, yes,
2: and stress is different, um, I think. You don't feel stress, you experience stress, like your work or what have you. But the effects of stress, anxiety, and all the other things that come with it, those are feelings, those are weaknesses. Whereas stress is the battle. And, you know, maybe there's a way of which we want to be um, all heroes in that battle of taking on more.
1: I don't know. I mean, coming from an Asian background, you know, why go through a battle feeling empty? Like, why not go through a battle having resources? Right. Because I think in terms of how we feel, you know, it's so important to our overall wellness and health. I think sometimes when we feel not so good, it's meant for us to look at and address well, and ride through, you know? Yeah, well, that's highly emotionally intelligent. You know,
2: that sounds good. That's a great idea. And we're in a culture that doesn't support that.
1: Why do you think that's still the case where mental health issues are still taboo? Well, they're a lot less taboo. I mean
2: back in the day, I mean you couldn't even mention it and also uh psychiatric uh, psychotherapy offices had one entrance and one and a place to leave so you never had to be seen by anybody waiting mm. And I think actually improvement in insurance and even managed care has helped more people access mental health treatment through their insurance through those kind of um you know if you have you you if you have a job or um good insurance from some other source, you will, I think that has helped us to access that kind of thing. But it's a fundamentally a weakness and it's in our brain, it's in our mind. So since we are so uh, alive in our minds, talking to ourselves, we think we should be able to handle it. And we all learn shame from a very young age. And I'm still trying to figure out the evolutionary benefit of shame. It ultimately saved our lives.
1: Um, I think actually, I think that's an amazing truth. Or how you were saying how mental health is accepted more now than in the past. Like, why are we, like, addressing it like the way our parents raised us? Like, they had very different views on mental health. Mm-hmm. And if it's accepted more, why don't we use the resources so it doesn't affect every single else other aspect in our physical health, you know? Yeah, there is
2: that sort of taboo thing. And um, I think people need to learn a lot more about access. And they need, we need to like, you know, you are worth enough to go talk about just yourself. And it's amazing how so many people rarely have the experience of being deeply listened to. And so you, you almost maybe forget to talk in a certain way about yourself because there's nothing to receive you. Yeah, it's amazing what listening to a person for an hour will do for them.
1: Yeah, I love that. Like that we ourselves are worthy of feeling better. Yeah, exactly. Or taking care of ourselves. Right. That we are worthy of that, of Mm -hmm. feeling good. Yeah.
2: Or, you know, it might be helpful for some people to think, well, I'm not any less worthy than anybody else. Or uh, the sense of uh, a friend of mine who was reluctant to get uh, carpal tunnel surgery um, because she was thinking about... um, all the people who couldn't get that surgery. And then I had to say, well, is it going to help them if you don't get the surgery? I love that. That's absolutely true. And I love that when, uh, when that friend said that to me. I was like, wow, a lot of people think that.
1: Or alter- alternatively, like, mm-hmm. how how much more could you help the world if you actually took care of yourself? Exactly. Instead of, like, running around the world, like, I don't know, with an empty soul tank. Right. You know, we fill up our mm-hmm. cars with gas. Mm-hmm. Why not our most important selves? Mm-hmm. You know, because right. how far can you go if you feel like crap? Well, exactly. <laughs> it's harder to get there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, instead of feeling like you actually may have enough, you know? Right. And the possibility of more. Right. But I think we have
2: created a culture of... um scarcity that there
1: isn't enough i love that you know coming from scarcity when we you know perhaps what would happen if we came from abundance
2: right well and had the right relationship to abundance i mean it's not three playstations in your house or what have you
1: yeah instead Mm -hmm. of i'm not be i am right which i do every day because i do affirmations every day (laughs) Mm -hmm. well that's that's great (laughs) it helps me to believe you know yeah Well, I I will say just on that point that,
2: um, say, in a a psychotherapeutic session um, or, or setting, it is sometimes hurtful to a person who feels unworthy to point out all the ways they are worthy. It can feel like, you know, acid on your skin because it's so unfamiliar in their defenses and their ways of being safe in the world and all their workarounds revolve around
1: not being worthy and being painfully unworthy. Or the fact that maybe the truth kind of shines a light on the way they thought life should be or the way life was for them when that may not be the truth at all. Right. Yeah. How could you see me as good if I I
2: was kind of like, I want to say a walking piece of, you know, when I was a
1: child. So how could you possibly see me as, as worthy? And isn't that interesting? Why is a child ever a piece of, you know, yeah. that's the doing of the parents. Like a child is vulnerable, you know, like we're all vulnerable to other people. I mean, we still are, but especially a child.
2: But I don't think it's just the parents. And um, I think we need to work out on uh, really not to have that, oh, it must be their parents. There's environments, there's school. Like, let's say you live in an area where you're going to sleep to the sound of gunshots all night. It's um, true. Or if you live in a certain level of deprivation, which is kind of like growing up with no color, that could be depressive. Or, you know, to be in a constantly depressive environment that people can't do about. And then there's all the very real abuse that happens um, that can be very traumatizing and scarring and shaming.
1: All those that can contribute to the adverse childhood experiences. Right,
2: just going to school is an really yeah. adverse childhood experience for a lot of kids just because the because it's not um maybe you can't meet their needs or the expectations are such that they'll never fit into that. And I don't think our educational system knows how to include and also work from, you know, here's your starting point to focus on, hey, you really can't read and you're in fifth grade. Well that's our starting point. Not you're not gonna make it to high school. hmm Yeah, maybe we give up too easily. Yeah, or, you know, there's uh, reductive ways of thinking and amplitive ways of thinking. And reduction is the lowest common denominator, which
1: reduces, to
2: use that word again, your possibilities.
1: What would you say uh, to someone who feels like they're afraid to get help? Well, I would start with, um, you know, I can
2: really understand that. And then want to ask them, well, what happened when you tried to ask for help before? And then maybe go through the pros and cons of asking for help, possibilities, supporting them, I'll go with you. Um, or tell me all about it. And maybe, you know, if we're skilled conversationalists with each other, we could, well, what do you think might help with that? If someone's super, super depressed that, I mean, and maybe suicidal, that's a whole different thing. Mm-hmm. But some of those questions would be entirely relevant.
1: Because you were saying before, even with like an hour of talking, it seems like you even feel that change in their, ener- in the patient's energy, even after even just an hour of counseling and talking. Right. They feel relieved.
2: You know, that might not be lasting change, but they've had a different experience. Of themselves, and I mean, I could say there's a lot of things we can feel terrible about. A number of things we can also be feeling really suicidal with intent and plan. And then when you talk it through, it's like it's gone um, because something has been resolved in the way you're thinking and feel, and it's it's spread to your whole experience of yourself.
1: I think that's true because even like a suicidal ideation, it could be a fleeting thought. Right, but in order to keep it just as a you know fleeting thought, I think we have to address it, right, and ask ourselves that painful question of why. You know, this may be an overgeneralization, but how often do patients normally come to you? Meaning, like every week, every month.
2: You know, I've um, I'm in the model where I see people mostly every week, um, because I think it's really important for continuity. I've seen people three to five times a week, um. In particular, if a person needs a lot of structure and there's just nothing available, like day treatment or partial outpatient or things like that. Most people I see once a week. Some people I see every other week for a variety of reasons. Not financial, because I'm, I'm, you know, I take insurance, so it's never usually a financial reason. Um, But um, yeah, something like that. And once a month is, I can't say it's useless it's, it would be useless in terms of a continuity of treatment and getting a person from one point to the next point. But um, if someone's maintaining you know once a month is can be perfect as well. But to begin with it may not be enough right Oh I usually want to see people every week, sometimes twice a week for a week
1: or two depending on how um, how acute they are. Yeah yeah because I really think like taking care of ourselves it's not like a one-time thing you know it's yeah. there's a maintenance to that. And I think we have to figure out what our maintenance is, but it's the path to healing, not just a one day quick, all done, all healed, you know, really like, except for like certain STDs, right. Most like most of like medical care does not have that possibility like that, you know? (laughs) Right. Well, I've always wondered, you know, if you go get your physical
2: every year as prevention, why wouldn't you just have a talk about your life with someone? once a year and if you know medicine wants to inhale um or consume mental health why not? why is that not provided for people because your doctor sure doesn't have to talk, have time to talk to you for an hour
1: yeah about i think your life. i think the priorities have gotten very confused in um our health care yeah unfortunately yeah or like actually addressing prevention.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Ment, addressing mental health is prevention, right? And also learning how to take care of your brain.
2: Yeah, from stress and say you're a soldier in battle. There are ways to take care of your brain that would reduce your the traumatic impact of what you've gone through, and also to increase your well being and and so forth, and your creativity and everything else.
1: Sometimes I also wonder this, like doctors can tell when, or hopefully most doctors can tell when a patient is stressed, anxious, or depressed, you know, mm-hmm. but maybe they don't know that it's actually important to really address, Right. you know, that huge connection between mind, body, and soul. And I think we're still continuing to discover this, right. but that connection exists.
2: Well, I also wonder... Um... If doctors are pressured to fix things, fix it quickly. I mean, you've got medicine. So that's like, those are our silver bullets, supposedly, for um, many things. And I don't think mental health responds to very many magic bullets. But there is, a, I think, there. I mean, I have a lot of empathy for
1: physicians who just, I, I got to fix this. Yes. You know? I think in the lack of time, they almost, it's like hard when you have an ongoing problem When there's no time to the actual practice, Mm -hmm. especially in the office setting. Like if you have your average of a seven-minute office visit, you know, because taking one's blood pressure, being asked questions by the medical assistant, that is all included in the 15-minute visit. And if you have seven minutes with a patient, it's like you hope for a quick fix, but that is a problem, you know? Right. (laughs) There is none. Yeah. Like maybe we can do a quick fix for a gonorrhea. But other than that, these are real issues that need to be addressed. Right.
2: Well, and I guess I was saying it's, uh, you know, there isn't uh, a movement has been for a long time to medicalize mm-hmm. mental health and you can't do it in seven minutes. No.
1: And I think in terms of addressing mental health, it's kind of like a comprehensive treatment, you know, mm-hmm. like it's not just, you know, medicine or counseling. I think it's All of it, you know, all different approaches to it that one should consider. Exactly. Body, mind, spirit. Uh,
2: uh,
1: Three windows into into our health. It's so comprehensive. It's kind of like a balance of all, you know. And sometimes you have to figure out which balance works for you. But even adding like exercise or, you know, who do you want to talk with? Talking is so important. You know, making sense of what you're feeling or meditation, or, you know, and then sometimes you need medicine for it, you know. That's right. There's so much. Well, and
2: that's the, um, I would say one comment about this in in my work, sometimes you work a long time with someone just so they can get to the point where they can engage their issues. And we have a numerous amount of, you know, a lot of lifestyle issues that we have to change because they are affecting us, our brains, and then in turn, our mental health. And how we relate to each other, how our society thrives or doesn't. And
1: It's true. And in terms of lifestyle, like, it takes time for you to figure out someone's lifestyle. Right. Well, it's you know? just lifestyle
2: stuff like yeah. learning enough about your brain so yeah. that, oh, you know, maybe 10 hours of really loud music isn't good for me. <laughs> or, um, you know, maybe I should... Have someone drive four days a week and I drive one because I get too much road rage. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe we could quiet and not watch TV tonight or just meditation and all these other things that um,
1: they take time and we don't prioritize them. And don't you think a lot of us kind of like wonder that, but we continue to do it. But I think if you wonder things like that, maybe in fact, it really is good for you. You know, well, right. I think that's true. Like, that's your body's indication of dropping a hint. hmm Brother or sister, please listen. <laughs> right. You know, right. like. Right. Absolutely. How do you feel about um, America's response to mental health issues?
2: Well, I think I'll think mostly about um, California because I know most about that. And um, during the Reagan era, there was this movement to move people out of institutions, and we would treat them in the community. And there was no money for that. And I remember going to my first kind of internship as a as a student. And I went to a, a date treatment center in San Francisco. This is so funny. And in this neighborhood, it was in the sunset. And in the neighborhood, there's this huge building. And I thought, wow, they're doing a good job here. So I went up to the huge building and it was a school that was no longer in use. Mm-hmm. So I walked around looking and looking. And then there's there's this little building with kind of a, you know, a crummy patio and what have you. It's little tiny. And I went in there and that was sunset day treatment. (laughs) I'm like, oh, okay, this is a whole different world. And I mean, maybe they didn't need more space, but excuse me, that place was full, overloaded. And, you know, that was when actually that was a place where people were mentally ill to come to a day treatment center every day because they needed that structure. And I don't think you see that much
1: anymore. And if you wanted to Was it like a community setting where they would stay for a couple of hours? speak stay with for, yeah. And, it,
2: people stay for different parts of the day. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Some people were very well
2: treated on um some people come in for like a prolixin shot every two weeks and they maintain they had jobs, they were working well in the environment. And yeah, it was good for them. Other people had to be there, like the, you know, the person who wore eight layers of clothing because they thought um if they went into the shower they would spray acid on them. And, you know, there's these are people I think medications are better at, less of these things happen. But um, and then hardly anybody in this town could call community mental health and get a therapist or a psychiatrist.
1: You mean in this town? In of, this town that we live in. Yeah. Yes. It's true. They're so I don't know if it's because they're overwhelmed or because there's not enough counselors or psychiatrists.
2: Yeah. Mental health costs money. Yeah,
1: it's very underfunded. I,
2: You know, I, I once heard this expression that um, you can estimate the character of a nation by how they treat their most vulnerable people. And I don't think we score very well in that.
1: No, I don't think so either. Both the mentally ill and for children. Could you imagine what our world could be like if people can actually get the help that they need? It could be better. And it has to be consistent. It
2: has to be enough. Yes. And it has to be personal and it has to have meaning. You know, people like, I I think one thing I learned at the day treatment center I worked at was that the, uh, the clients had an attachment to the center Mm -hmm. because they were loved there and cared for. It was a pretty unique place in that regard, but their humanity mattered, but yeah, they, they matter as people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would say that, you know, I know ne- uh, many people who work for the county and, uh, as mental health practitioners, and these people are top-notch people. And they're, I, I have never met one person that I thought, OMG, what are you doing? Um, and very, very highly trained and really caring people in Santa Cruz County mental health, and um, they just don't have the resources.
1: I think our thinking has to really change. Oh, yeah. Like, it exists. Mm -hmm. It exists. Mm -hmm. We all, I really believe that we all at some point in our lives experience it as well. Like, you know, no one is any different. It exists.
2: That's right. No one's any different.
1: Do you wonder if most of the problems we have in our society is linked to untreated mental health issues? I think a lot of it is. And there's also multi-layers
2: of what's wrong. It's a a sense of belonging, a connection with the common good having enough. And then mental illness, even non diag There's a lot of uh, distress that's non-diagnosable as well. It just wears you down. Yeah, it's it's very hard.
1: Or like even like the trauma that people continue to carry. Mm-hmm. If you can help. So- well, I've
2: always thought that, boy, if people would look through the window into themselves or their own vulnerability or the places they've suffered, their own special way of not feeling quite okay, that is a um and embrace that it's the most compassion building thing around is to recognize what's in us as opposed to project it onto someone else i think that is just absolutely important so it's i mean i think mental health is really a part of part of mental health and recovery
1: is a path of developing compassion it is and i think like a lot of us pretend to be a certain way. And I think when we pretend to be a certain way, we realize that we may not be that way, you know? But I think like all of our vulnerabilities Mm -hmm. could and is actually empowering. Right, absolutely. I can say that not everybody
2: who goes through traumatic things becomes a more compassionate compassionate person, but it's about um, seeing what's true and embracing that, like really being willing to go through it to say, oh yeah, that happened to me. And I didn't have control. It's very hard for us to admit that we don't have control. Um, and, and some people go through things and they're madder than ever. So you know, it's, <laughs> I can think of uh, some public figures, and not the usual one, but um, who have been through trauma and they directly state, well, I'm not going to treat anybody else differently because I've gone through that. So it didn't work for them.
1: Yeah. A lot of people who experience or um, commit domestic violence, mm-hmm. they were ve- victims of domestic violence themselves. Yeah, or other kind of violence. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a wormhole. <laughs> Go really far down. <laughs> you know, like feeling vulnerable is mm-hmm. not a comfortable feeling. I know that, you know, yeah. we all know that. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's it's a path with greater possibilities mm-hmm. and Better impact. Yeah. Like something to actually develop. Mm-hmm. Ask ourselves why and connect with others. And I think, you know, I think this pandemic, you know, we're experiencing it, but I think it also exists to remind us, remind ourselves that we're all connected. Right. And I believe we will have a, a really um, good
2: opportunity to do that as we um, recover and start um, dealing with the, um, collective trauma that this has caused and it's a lot yes yeah and that takes a while to get over just study any disaster or any generational disaster like the things that lasted in the generation the depression generation who would have been my parents the world war ii generation also my parents Mm um um, the 9-11 generation and what that did to us as a culture and then that specific generation of children that are now adults um
1: that's interesting that you say that so after the great depression and um uh the you know the twin Towers, like how long do you think people experience that trauma for
2: well i i think in that i don't know exactly how long but i think the residue in terms of changing your your assumptions are changed yeah i could lose my job i could be a hobo on the the train line or we could get attacked again, and I think we're in another situation where we're being traumatized, and it's challenging all our assumptions about what we felt we could assume or were entitled to, and and then um, you do end up going on and developing new assumptions. And I think the healing work is that they can be optimistic assumptions, mm-hmm. realistic and optimistic, and you know, always in a process of change, there's that conservation versus innovation. We want to pretend like it never happened, or we want to have it all over. But there's a dialective of this is the same. We need to make this change till we move to the next place. So,
1: I agree with you. I yeah. think fear is really rampant right now. Oh, yeah. And fear is a creator for many things that you may or may not want in your lives, but fear is really rampant. I mean, even with remote school. Perhaps there was a window of time that we could have made it work, you know, for all of our children, but there's going to be so much fear when it's possible to send our children back to school, or it's possible to return to work. Right. Fear and residual stress and
2: this tendency to isolate and um, be distrustful of other people. And then this is all wrapped in climate change and our political situation and everything else, which would be a room hurl. Of course, we're not going down, but... Um. yeah, it's, I think we have to, like, I belong to a group, a discussion group of concerned psychologists. And um, we're talking about, of course, the things we've been through with our patients and so forth. And how are we going to create platforms to respond? Because this is going on significantly for a while. And there are people who don't have access to, say, critical incident stress debriefing, basically just talking about what's happening to them. And then we'll have to keep doing that. How are we going to help ourselves recover and become healthy and realistically hopeful people? So it's a lot of work to do. How do you think, though? Well, I I don't think we've gotten there yet. Mm -hmm. I'm just kidding. But (laughs) I think we have to make um, community conversations accessible. I think we need to just get people together. Let's just have a circle and talk about this. Like one of the things we talked about, I, I think I brought this up and I thought, oh, this is such a dumb idea. But I thought, why couldn't we have critical incident stress debriefings with the people who it's happening to, just your regular citizens? And we're going to try to work on a way to do that in some form. So that people can talk to people, not just their family and their friends, but, oh, you know, my neighbor who lives here and not in my neighbor, you know, that kind of thing. So I think something will happen in this county.
1: And I think in order to like address our fears, unfortunately, the truth is we have to address our vulnerabilities and be honest about them. And if I think we feel like we can't help ourselves, then why not ask for help from each other? You know, be it a friend, be it a counselor, be it a doctor or, you know, reach out. But I think there's a a lot of change that has to come for us to really, in general,
2: be able to do that because by virtue of evolution, we are hardwired to survive and in the most dire of situations anyone will do anything they need to to survive and when we're in that kind of survival other people that are not our own really aren't important and we don't trust them now that's probably that's an extreme example Mm -hmm. but um it's we have to um look at the meaning of survival in a different way than we do
1: exactly I mean, I think you're right. Like the resiliency of humanity is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. However, right. I think how we choose to live literally affects how we want to die. Exactly. You know? Oh, yeah. And if you want to live like that, feeling bad like that, then I think it's going to affect how one dies. Absolutely. Because I think there's so many greater possibilities. hmm If we take care of ourselves, Mm -hmm. you know, like none of us, like all of us are feeling some version of anxiety, irritation, Mm -hmm. depression. Like it varies. For me, it varies every single day, you know, like. Right. But none of us are alone. I think that's the ultimate truth. We are all in this together. Well, we're in the same storm,
2: but we're not all in the same boat. Yeah.
1: But yeah, we are together.
2: But, like in the Titanic, some are in the lifeboats, and some are you know hanging onto a scrap of wood, yeah,
1: in freezing water. But if you're hanging onto a scrap of wood, why not scream and let someone know? You know Well, I think and I'm thinking,
2: actually, of the Titanic, the story was people would not let people in their lifeboats even if they had room, which I think is an interesting metaphor. Yeah.
1: And maybe you're right. Like society needs to change, exactly. A lot.
2: Yeah, no one's worth more than anybody else. No,
1: that is the ultimate truth. It mm-hmm. doesn't matter how little or how a lot of money you have, mm-hmm. how great or how, you know, not so great you look. What no life of your is skin worth skin more. Is or yeah. Any of that. Exactly. Your disability or not? Every life is worth the same. The same. Yeah. So we could make it every life worth a lot. And hopefully there are people. Who will hear that screaming and mm-hmm. actually help. Yeah. And I think that person who actually helped is more in touch with their humanity, you know, mm-hmm. like than others.
2: Or more able to respond, which Dang. I guess would be more in touch with their humanity. Mm-hmm. But and there are um, there, I think there are a lot of factors there. Yeah. But we I mean, you were talking I mean, we're talking about people who really turn their backs on this and just choosing a level of denial about the existence of other people that's just hard to understand
1: i guess we all have to decide what can we live you know what things can we live with ourselves with you know for the rest of our lives like yeah yeah if you can live with that choice then so be it but i can't live with that choice and if
2: you don't mind my saying it's i think we have to
1: make that choice every day because we're in a different mood every day exactly you see it all around you know You see the injustices that still exist in our society. You see the homeless. Mm -hmm. I mean, to live in a tent like that, Mm -hmm. it must be so cold. Yeah. You know, or to have, need help and not get it. So I was reading the, you know, Washington Post, and there is an article um, that states that America's system for monitoring suicides is so broken and slow that experts won't know until roughly two years after the pandemic. Whether suicides have risen nationally, but they were saying the coroners are seeing this now and they know something's wrong. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about this? Boy, suicide is
2: uh, in in mental health for a long time has been like the crazy aunt and the addict. You know, we don't really want to talk about or look at that. But there's um, there is a fair amount of um, there's increased training. Also, actually, to get licensed, you must have a specific training in suicide dealing with suicide, suicide prevention, and so forth. And I hear um, a lot more public service announcements about suicide, call this line. There's a lot of uh, programs or news reports on suicide, and they always put a number. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think those are some cosmetic um, improvements that might have some effect, that actually probably do have effectiveness. But we see it keep going up, which means we're not dealing with other conditions, and people are alone. And they're having more thoughts. Yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. Interesting about the corners. Maybe they should ask them about the real suicide rate.
1: Yeah, I think they already know, you know, the medical examiners. They're seeing it. Right. Or even like among our youth. Like it pains me to think that our youth could even possibly be having these thoughts. What are we doing wrong as a society? I
2: wish I could answer that question a short answer yeah what happens if you call the national hotline for suicide i think they um it's like suicide prevention so you talk to someone Mm -hmm. like there's local suicide prevention uh, that now has an 800 number there's also the county crisis line you talk to someone at that very moment at that that very moment you can talk to someone and then their job is really to change, help you get out of that moment. Yeah. Can we shift a little bit here? Can we shift and just say, look at things a little differently? Why don't to think about it till tomorrow and call me. So uh, in suicide prevention, they'll develop relationships with people who are constantly going back. And then the, the hope is to get them into treatment or get them some help. I think sometimes, I don't know the percentages on this, but suicide prevention can also intervene if they have enough information.
1: hmm Yeah.
2: Are there a lot of local resources or is that a problem? I think the local resources, there the county crisis line. Mm-hmm. They There's suicide prevention. There are actually a ton of therapists in this town. I mean, there are you know, I think we have a high per capita rate of psychotherapists in this town. But
1: a lot of them are probably full at this point mm-hmm. or don't accept insurance. Do you think in the town of Santa Cruz there could be more um honesty regarding mental health issues here compared to others, or? I think Santa Cruz is, um,
2: my experience is that we're more straightforward than not. And people in Santa Cruz can see it in terms of people without homes and how their behavior on the street and things like that. But I don't think they make the connection between, and you know, the the mental health level of, I mean, like, I can't remember the exact statistic, but it's at least you know, 50% of the people who live, who are homeless, um, have mental illness. And some of those people get treatment and some of them don't. And getting people into treatment who are severely mentally ill is, can can be challenging. And so what is unfortunate, like you can walk into a church pretty frequently. There's lots of churches around, but you can't walk into a, just pop into a mental health office and say, I need to talk. And why not? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they could do a little marketing thing and have, you know, Lucy, psychiatric advice, you know, 25 cents. and (laughs) Just joking.
1: But they should have more of those. Exactly. Just to drop in. Right. To drop in. And maybe that human connection at that very moment could be life-saving. It could be. To To be reminded that your life matters.
2: Or just have that experience that you matter in a moment to someone. Yeah. Yeah. It could be life-saving. It can be. Absolutely. Well,
1: thank you so much, Dr. Farnbach. This was a really interesting and impactful conversation, and thank you for being a light in our community. Oh, bless your heart. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. All right. If you are having thoughts of suicide, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. They are available 24 hours a day to talk. Your life is meaningful. Sometimes it takes time to figure things out, but your life is meaningful and important.
0: We are honored that you are continuing to listen to this podcast. Please consider subscribing, tell your friends, and write us a great review. For more information, visit our website, drlostorfound.com.